So, you know, last week we talked about, you know, we were talking about the last couple of weeks, um, preparing yourself, becoming oriented to, to seriously undertaking the practice of uh, not just meditation, but also a dharma. The dharma that, I, of course, that I teach you about is the Buddha dharma, but most of the things I've been talking to you about would apply to any dharma that you were to undertake. And dharma, by the way, has a variety of meanings, but when we're using it in this sense, uh, it, it means uh, truth. So any wisdom teaching is a dharma. And the Buddha dharma, Buddha means uh, uh, one who is awake, or the awakened one. So Buddha dharma is the truth of an awakened one. And last week we talked about uh, we talked about intentions. We talked about attitude uh, and how these things, how the right intentions can uh, strongly support your practice. How the right attitude uh, makes it possible for your practice to go much more smoothly. And the two are connected in that. Ultimately, all there are is intentions. Everything else flows out of intentions. And um, when you have the right intentions, everything that you want follows from those, and success in your practice follows. Trying to recall what else we talked about. Part of the right attitude is getting getting rid of the notion that somehow there is a a, 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 a you or self, an I, that's in charge of your mind. But, uh, and therefore, working like we talked earlier, working gently with your with your own mind rather than trying to bludgeon it into submission or beat yourself up because it won't do what you want <laughs> and all of these other kinds of things. I was just wondering if anybody has any questions, anything left over from last week's discussion that they would like us to address further. <coughs> well, in that case, We'll, what we're going to talk about now is faith and doubt. And faith can be a good thing, it can also be a bad thing. Same thing with doubt. It's a good thing, and it could be a bad thing. When I think of faith in terms of a good thing that supports you in your practice, I'm thinking more in terms of confidence. It may be inspired confidence, but it's not it's not blind acceptance. I don't want you ever to approach the practice of meditation or the Buddha Dharma from a place of blind acceptance. Buddha himself said, don't believe anything I say. Find out for yourself. And he said, any teaching that you come across, it's the same thing. Don't accept it because somebody that's very revered is teaching it. Don't accept it because it's been written in books and scriptures and passed along for centuries. The only reason for accepting a teaching is that it works, and when it works, the results it produces are good. They're beneficial. They're beneficial to you. They're beneficial to everyone around you. That they bring you to the place that you want to be. And that's 
that's what should always lie behind your faith. But your faith, you have to have confidence. If you don't have confidence that there is something to be attained, if you don't have confidence that this is a path that will work, if you don't have confidence that you are able to do it, then you don't stand a chance. You know, your, your, your doubt, and this is the unhealthy doubt, the unhealthy doubt is kind of a reverse faith. It's the faith that, uh, that uh, something's not going to work. Doubt is, is the, in this sense, can block you, obstruct you, even paralyze you from doing what you need to do. So you need confidence. So where do you get that confidence? <clears throat> well, if you... There's a number of sources. In terms of meditation, your confidence that there's something of value in meditation should come at least in part from the fact that you see people who meditate and you see that something is definitely, something good is definitely coming from it for them. It's made a difference for them. And, of course, what you hear and read about what meditation can do for you. That's very important. But for it to be based on confidence rather than based on blind faith, there has to be a degree of understanding. It has to make sense to you. You can have to you have to be able to see that, yes, I can see how this could possibly work. I can see how this way of training the mind can make a difference. I can see how it can address some of the problems that I have in my life and some of the obstacles that are standing in the way of me being the kind of person that I would like to be and living the kind of life that I would like to live. So that's that's where your confidence should come come from. From other people that have followed the same path, you should see it in whoever is teaching you. They should have this. And of course, after you have some experience, then you get to do the same thing. You, you get to be an example to others. The people around you will look and say, there's something about her that, you know, I'd like that. I wonder if it comes from these practices that she does. You can instill confidence in other people interest. <clears throat> and when you're being taught and the information you receive, it shouldn't if it sounds magical or confusing or anything like that, you could be persuaded if somebody's giving you a description of what you should do and why you should do it and what it's going to do for you that you can't rationally understand, you could be persuaded, especially if the person that's telling you this, you know, has a certain amount of charisma. But that's not very, that's, that's a very weak foundation for practice. Instead, it should be reasonable to you. It should be plausible. So you see it working in the world and other people, and you should be able to understand how it can possibly work for you. That's going to give you the kind of confidence that is going to get you through the inevitable periods of doubt. And it's going to give you the kind of motivation to do what's necessary to achieve the results of a practice. So let's talk about doubt a little bit. Doubt... <clears throat> That's a, it, it, it's, it's a good thing to have. If you didn't have doubt, then you'd be a sucker for everything that came along. Right? Doubt is that, that part of the mind which looks at the, at the negative side. 
what if this doesn't work? What if I'm investing this effort, this time, this money, this whatever, whatever you happen to be investing in any kind of activity? What if I'm making this investment in this thing and it's not going to work? It's not going to pay off. And it comes up as a feeling, comes up as an emotion. But the purpose of that emotion is to encourage you to use your rational faculties to make sure that this really is worthwhile. And keep in mind, I'm speaking generally now. I'm not speaking about meditation practice or Buddha Dharma or anything like that. Everything in your life, you experience doubts at certain times. And if it's a bad doubt, what it does is it totally undermines your motivation, your willingness to, to continue. If it's a good doubt, what it does is it makes you look carefully at what you're doing and why you're doing it and whether it makes sense and whether the whether the benefits are worth the cost to you and so on and so forth. So doubt is really a healthy mechanism in the mind. And when does it tend to come up? It tends to come up at those times when what you have to put into a process is a lot. The more you have to put into a process, the more likely doubt's going to kick in and say, hey, you better have a look at this and make sure it's really worthwhile. Likewise, in those times when you don't seem to be getting that much back, you don't seem to be making progress, and anything you ever do in life has its plateaus, right? So when you hit those plateaus, doubt comes in and says, you better have a closer look at this and make sure you're on the right path, make sure you're doing the right thing. So to have that kind of doubt come up is inevitable. It's built into you and it's a very healthy and natural thing. The way to deal with it, the way you're meant to deal with it, it's an emotional part of the mind calling for the rational, intellectual part of your mind to take a closer look. And so that's the healthy way of dealing with it. The emotion comes up, you don't let the emotion take you over. Instead, you, you put your mind to work doing what needs to be done. If your confidence is well-based, then you have a lot to work with when, this, when doubt comes up, right? If you can see that the practice you're doing has benefited other people, then that's going to take care of one aspect of doubt. You're not going to doubt that results are possible. You're not going to doubt that that uh, the method, at least the method that that person used, you, you know, has some validity. Um, if it makes sense to you, then. You know, if you have some kind of logical understanding, then when you invoke your rational mind to examine what you're doing, you've got just what you need to work with. You can look at your own experience and say, well, this sounded reasonable when I started six months ago. Now, in terms of what I've learned since by doing this, is it still reasonable? And if it is, you're solid. If it is, you'll find that feeling of doubt evaporates. And you'll find instead you have the motivation necessary to continue. So the right kind of faith works together with the right kind of doubt to keep you on track. When you have doubts, it can take several different forms. You can doubt that the goal is possible. You can doubt that the means you're employing will actually get you to that goal. You can doubt that the person that is offering you the means, teaching you the means, can do so effectively. And you can doubt your own ability, too. And this is very common. As a matter of fact, probably this kind of doubt arises most often with most people. That maybe the goal is possible. Maybe the method works. Maybe the person that's teaching it knows what they're talking about. 
that maybe there's something wrong with me. Have you ever had that thought? (laughs) (laughs) So, when doubt comes up, to some degree or another, you'll have to address these, these different issues. The ultimate antidote to doubt, to every kind of doubt, is success. Right? And success is cumulative over time. You want to keep in mind your successes, but as you go along, you have to realize that you know it's easy to forget what how you used to be. It's easy to forget how how your practice was in the beginning. It's easy to get used to where you are now, and especially if you've reached kind of a plateau where it's a little harder to see the progress because the progress happened a few weeks ago. And it doesn't seem to be happening today, and it didn't seem to be happening yesterday. It's really easy to slip into feeling like, well, this just isn't working. Nothing's happening. But the, the resolution to doubt is to be able to recognize and appreciate, to look back and to see how you've changed, how, you, how your practice has improved, how your life is moving in a better direction, and things like that. And even if it has, you need to be able to see it and understand it. You can't just take it for granted, because sometimes sometimes the doubt itself will blind you to the successes that you've had. I mean, that is a quality of doubt. It tends to uh, diminish the value of your successes, right? Make you see them in a lesser light. Of course, that's all part of how it makes you look more deeply into things. So you have to be capable of seeing your successes, and you have to learn to do that. But to the degree that you can, and to the degree that you have had success, that is the most powerful antidote to doubt at all, of all. And, I mean, that's the proof. So, keep that in mind. Whenever doubt comes up, have a careful look. Keep track as you go along. Even when doubt is not there, notice notice your successes. Let them boost your motivation and your confidence. I wonder in this context um, what the difference is between doubts in the mind and the critical mind, Hmm. or is there no difference? Between doubt in the mind? Doubt in the critical mind, the critical mind, being critical, Yeah. Well, a critical mind, I mean, what we want to be capable of is critical thinking, right? We want to be able to look with clarity, objectivity, and evaluate, right? But there's another kind of critical mind. I mean, basically, your critical mind is just that rational faculty in operation. But that rational faculty can be overcome by certain kinds of emotions. Um, In which case, instead of rationally evaluating, the critical mind becomes a fault-finding mind. And those... Those two are very, very different things, but they're not different in terms of the rational faculty involved. They're different in terms of the motivation. If you're critical of somebody else, you know where that comes from. It either comes from aversion or wanting to make yourself look and feel better, right? And when you're critical of yourself, it's got similar unwholesome roots to it. So you have to be able to recognize when 
when you say critical mind, whether this this is a mind that is being compelled to find fault, to find failure, to find to find the negative side of everything, or to look in a balanced way and see both both the good and the bad and weigh them against each other. See what that try to understand what the real situation is. I have a question about the antidote to doubt. Um, what if it's a situation where it's a relationship and you have doubts about it? Not necessarily, and it could be a student-teacher relationship. Um, and you have <coughs> serious doubts. Mm-hmm. Um, and to apply an antidote of success to that could take you right back into this unhealthy relationship. So it's kind of a healthy doubt that you're having about it. Yeah. I don't know how success can be an antidote to that doubt. Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> and it actually applies to what we were going to talk about next, which is picking teachers and picking teachings. But, yeah, in our relationships, a healthy doubt can arise. But there's all kinds of emotions that can come in and subvert that the, the clarity and objectivity of your examination. The, just as a general rule, the more emotion is involved, the more likely your rational faculties are going to be subverted in one way or another. In relationship, we get in relationships and we develop attachments, we develop needs, uh, the other person fills needs of ours, Sometimes we're aware of the needs they feel fill, sometimes they're not. Um, thoughts about ending a relationship triggers fears. You know, you know, I mean, they're kind of, well, maybe this is the best relationship I could get into, so it's not perfect. I better hold on to it anyway, you know. Otherwise, I'll live my life lonely and miserable. You know, these kinds of things. So you've got all this other stuff that's going to bring emotions in that. You know, they really obscure your ability to look and evaluate in a truly objective and rational way. And that's something pretty well everybody has to go through. There's nobody in this room, I'm sure, who hasn't, not just once, but many times, been in a relationship, had doubt come up, and tried to evaluate it, and found that you're not really any good at it at all. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, that part of your mind that doesn't like things about the relationship can gear you to see everything that's wrong with the relationship and everything that's wrong with the other person and everything that's not working in the morning. And then that night, the part of your mind that has these needs that are being filled that doesn't, doesn't want to cut off the source and is afraid of what might happen, that kicks in. And so you're really confused, right? You go back and forth. And, and no matter what what you're experiencing, it's, it's pretty much not clear. So that's a hard thing to do. Very difficult. Because <laughs> in those instances, to me, when I try to apply you know, rationally to the facts, this is what I can, you know, deal with ethically or whatever in my life, and this is what I can't. Yeah. That, because of the emotion, it feels very cold to think that way. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the hard part. Well, I. I <laughs> It, 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 it may seem cold, but I think it it really isn't, if you, you know, if you, if you think about it. And it's very important, but it's very difficult to do. And that's why, that's why in relationships it's always good to take your time about making decisions. And it's often good to talk to somebody that you can really trust, who has your interests at heart, and nothing at stake in terms of how your relationship turns out. It can be hard to find those people, but they can be really, really helpful in those kinds of situations. One thing that this kind of illustrates, your rational faculties, 
they operate according to a principle that in, uh, in computers is called GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. The rational faculty takes whatever you give it, and it operates on it, and it will tell you the result. But it has no control over what you put into it. And what's happening when there's an emotional bias is what's going into the rational process isn't the whole story. And a lot of times it's being driven by things that you're not aware of. You know, your, your, your own deep-seated desires and fears that you're not conscious of. Yet, there they are, hidden in the background, but they're making sure that the information that goes into the hopper for a rational mind has been pre-selected to kind of <laughs> go one way rather than another. So, <clears throat> thinking about things is, it's a great tool, but you know, it, it, it's not, there's nothing magic about it, and as I say, remember, garbage in, garbage out. The other thing too, and I'll mention this, is what we refer to as intuition. We have an intuition that there's something wrong, or intuition that this is the right thing that we should do. And we listen to that. But you need to be warned that these intuitions are coming from exactly the same place <laughs> as the biases that go into the rational process. So you say, okay, I'm not going to try to think my way to the answer, I'm going to trust my intuitions. What you're doing is you're inviting those unconscious drives to manipulate you. <laughs> Um, sometimes it can be good because you know that if this is the mind the, the part that you're conscious of is just this little piece up at the top and the part that rationally analyzes information is just another little chunk over here and all the real actions taking place in the, in the invisible part that you can't see. And that's why sometimes if you trust intuition, you just let that huge invisible part that is really most of your mind do its job and work things out. It will come up with the answer that's right for you. It's just that you can't rely on that 100%. So you have to be really careful. Yes? Um, <clears throat> you may be heading towards this because you talked about finding teachers, etc. Mm -hmm. This is an impossible question. I know every so often I things come together so that I think, you know, I think I should seriously pursue the Buddhist and and then I think about whether this is correct or not but I think about what a big change I'd have to make in my life and I'm talking about you know time to meditate time to study time to relate to a teacher a lot of things and that's really my question is mm -hmm. uh can you address that somewhat? Sure, I'd love what, to address that. Like how would one's life change just as far as time, usage of time? Yeah. <clears throat> There's degrees of commitment that you can have to <clears throat> this dharma. You can be a dabbler, you like to read a few books about it, you know, you, every now and then you maybe go to a meditation retreat or go sit with a group or something like that. But you're basically just dabbling. Or you could become a hobbyist where, you know, you really like it. You like it so well that 
you read lots of books about it and you listen to recorded talks and you try to have a regular meditation practice. So you're kind of a hobby hobby Buddhist. <laughs> and then you can get and, and that's, you know, you pretty well have to start out as a dabbler before you can become a hobby Buddhist. And then if you're a hobby Buddhist, at some point you might come to that place where you realize this is all I really care about. This is what I really want to do. You know, I, that everything else in my life is going to have to become a part of this. You know, that's a really good place to be. Then you're a dedicated practitioner. It's really clear that, you know, this is not one of the three or four important things in my life, but this is the one that really coordinates and organizes the other three or four things. This is the core of my life. But don't expect to, that you're going to automatically jump to that place. You're going to work your way up to it. Yeah, but I mean, if, you, if one were at that place, then your life would change quite a bit. It would. I'll tell you how your life would change. The way you want to spend your time is studying and reflecting and practicing. And you do other things. You'll have a family, you'll have a job, you know, if you're a layperson. I mean, if you went into a monastery, maybe you could negotiate a situation where that's all you had to do. Somebody else would feed you and take care of you. But if you're living in the world, you have these other things. You got a job. Maybe you got pets to take care of. You've got a family. Uh, but what it looks like is that studying, practicing the Dharma are the most important thing that you can do. So when you have spare time, that's what you use it for. You know, you, when you've got time to read a book, do you read Stephen King? Or do you read something that is going to help you understand what you're interested in? It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, uh, I'm not necessarily saying the only books you read are books on Buddhism. They could be all kinds of things, but they're things that their meaning and, and the purpose why you're interested in them is that they're helping to grow your understanding of the Dharma. That's, uh, that's one of the ways that uh, your, your life changes. And you stop wasting time on other things, things that you don't, you're not so interested in anymore. Your friends change. You'll want to associate with people who are interested in the same thing that you are. And, uh, you know, the kinds of, the ways that you used to spend your time socially, or the kinds of people you used to spend time with, you'll find yourself... You know, this, this really isn't what I'm interested in talking about. This isn't what I'm interested in doing. It's not what I'm interested, where I'm interested in being. And, and that's one change that will happen. You'll also find that practicing the Dharma isn't just something you do at certain set times of the day when you sit down. And studying the Dharma isn't something that you do with a set of headphones on or a book in front of you, but that when you go to work, you're practicing. And in your interactions with other people, you're studying your own mind, you're studying the behavior of others, you're seeing the truth of the Dharma in that. Even when you're driving from one place to another, you see the Dharma is all about what's really happening. And so... There's never a time that, that you can't be engaging in it fully. Your relationships with your family, you know, you, you still do the things that you have to do. But you do them coming from a different place. Instead of interacting with members of your family in kind of a blind condition way, because you study the Dharma, you have a different way of looking at it. You look at how 
selfishness affects your interactions and how love affects your interaction. Where compassion comes in, where aversion comes in, the roots of the negativity that come up inevitably in relationship. You watch, you watch the way emotions come up that affect your interactions, like anger and fear and everything else like that. And instead of just, you know, instead of it's just something that happens to you and you can't control, instead it's something that you want to understand, that you need to understand, you have the tools to understand it. And so you end up, if you're a dedicated practitioner, 24 hours a day, even when you're asleep, you're going to be practicing, studying, reflecting. That's what it looks like. It doesn't necessarily mean you quit your job so you can do nothing but meditate and reflect and study. Because, as a matter of fact, I guarantee you, unless you're very wealthy, that you're going to end up with less time to practice. But your job can become a part of your practice. So you don't have to quit your job. And you don't have to abandon your family. They become a part of your practice and your relationships with them will become richer because of it. So, does that help? Yeah. But you get there, you have to go, you know, you have to start with where you are. And if you, if you dabble sincerely, it'll draw you in. And the more success you have, the more it'll part, important it will become. And that's the way it is. It's the totality of my life. There really, there really isn't any piece left over that that's not that, that isn't a part of it. And that's the way it is for some other people in this room, too. And that's the way it could be for, for all of you. But it has, to, it, it has to come naturally. It has to come from your heart. So let that happen. So, okay, let's talk about teachers a little bit. <coughs> Teacher, a lot of different kinds of teachers. I'll tell you how I think of being a teacher. It's a kind of service. It's a service profession. The whole, the job of the teacher is to serve the needs of the student. I, the kind of teacher who comes from this lofty place of superiority, who flings out little tidbits of wisdom here and there. It's not really a teacher. <laughs> and no matter how wise or good a person is, they can only be your teacher if you can learn from them. They have to be able to teach you something, and you have to be able to learn something from them. So it's not about a category of beings that are teachers and you just find one and glom onto him or her. A teacher is somebody that you sync with in the way that, that when they talk, when they teach, that it, it feeds you, you understand, you learn, and you grow. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with going to somebody that everybody says is the greatest teacher in the world, and you say, "Yeah, I can see this, you know, great teacher, but you know, it just doesn't work for me." That's all right. Go find somebody that does work for you. Far, far better, you know. When anybody, you know, I, I assume that everybody <laughs> who keeps coming back here finds that that we we sync pretty good. That what I say works for you. You know, that I can, when you ask questions, I can tune in on what your needs are and, and fill them. 
And of course, along the way, there's been people who come and then they go somewhere else because I don't work for them. And that's quite all right. I don't mind. <laughs> you know. uh, and you, is the same thing. Find a teacher that works for you. Um, I suppose if, if, if I'm the only teacher around, please do keep coming until you find somebody that works better for you. <laughs> even, even a teacher that's not totally in sync with you is better than no teacher at all. But as soon as, as, as soon as you come across somebody that speaks your language, you know, that can go to your heart, go with them. So, a teacher-student relationship, it, it's, it's really, the attitude from both sides is really important. A student, you knows the saying that to, to truly learn, a student has to be open and receptive, willing to take it in. Um, a student a student who thinks they already know the answers finds it very, very difficult to learn. Because when they go to the teacher and they listen to what the teacher has to say, the whole time their mind's trying to twist what the teacher's saying around a fit, what they already think is the way things are. That's referred to as a student who's like a pot that's already full. <laughs> Try to pour more in and just spills out. <laughs> it's already full. And you have to be open and, and receptive. You have to be willing to take it in, try it out, test it for yourself, work with it. If you're not, if you listen to what the teacher says and you immediately decide in that instant, nah, I don't agree with that. Then you're, you're like a pot that's closed, the lid's on. No matter how much you pour over the top, it just spills off the lid and the pot stays empty. The other thing too, if you're open and if you're willing to take the information in, you have to work with it. You have to make it yours. If you don't, you're like a leaky pot. <laughs> Whatever goes in is just going to leak out, leak out the cracks in the pot, like a cracked pot. Cracked pot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the student isn't, you know the. There's certain qualities that you need to cultivate in yourself as a student. So you find a teacher that you resonate with, and then you open yourself up, and then you're willing to try it out and work with it. And then you have a really good learning relationship there. And your teacher should be, you know, no matter whether they're teaching algebra or, or English literature or anything else, there should be some caring and some passion. If somebody's teaching, if somebody's teaching literature, if they have a passion for it, they're going to be they're going to be a much much better. They're, they're going to be a good teacher. If they don't have a passion for it. It's going to be very difficult to learn anything from them. As a matter of fact, it's like kind of like learning yourself just from reading a book. It needs to be more than just a passion for the subject matter. Because if you've ever taken a literature course from somebody that was in love with literature but didn't give a damn about the students, they get up there in the front of the lecture hall and they talk to themselves and they tell themselves these wonderful ideas that they have and these wonderful ways that they have of seeing what Joseph Conrad meant when he wrote The Heart of Darkness, you know, and the students are saying, what's going on? <laughs> what's this about? So in addition to a passion for the subject matter, there has to be a passion to, to give it away. 
to make it available for somebody else. And so look for that in a teacher, for somebody who's interested in helping you to have the same passion for what you're learning that, that they do. And you can learn from a lot of different people, and you should. And there's absolutely no reason why somebody should only have one teacher. If you're lucky enough to have two people that you resonate with and that can teach you, that's great. That's wonderful. If you have three, wow, that's even better. It's not quite the same thing as getting married. There needs to be a lot of respect in the relationship. And if you want to if you want to have a teacher that has the best qualities, then you should take some responsibility for cultivating those qualities in teacher. Which you do you want a teacher who is passionate about teaching, then you try to be passionate about learning. And they'll be more passionate about teaching. So you, you look at all the different qualities of a teacher that I've talked about. As a student, you can help to draw those out from the person that's teaching you. Even if you have a teacher that you don't resonate quite that well with, if you're willing to be active in the relationship and not just the passive recipient, you know, here I am, pour some information in, thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, but engage. You bring out the best qualities in the teacher and you'll have a better teacher and you'll learn more from them. So. And in terms of the Dharma, what's being taught is not just information. Information is present in books and of course it's easier to understand if somebody else explains the book to you. You could learn chemistry on your own, go get introductory chemistry text and read through it and learn chemistry on your own, but as you know it's far, far easier if you sign up for a course and you go to class three times a week, right? Somebody explains it to you. Somebody leads you through the text and things like that. But with the Dharma, that's not good enough. Because the truths that you're trying to understand, and even the methods and techniques you're trying to learn, don't lend themselves well to simple descriptions. Or they don't they don't lend themselves well to verbal descriptions that can be so clearly understood. So a teacher who does nothing more than guide you through the texts that he's read may you may learn more from them than you would reading the texts on your own. Then again you may learn less. Because as I say, this kind of information doesn't lend itself to really clear, simple verbal expression. And if he reads the text and he misunderstands it and then explains it to you, then that happens. So when we talk about meditation and we're talking about Buddhist Dharma, there is this whole other dimension. Your teacher should be a successful meditator to teach meditation. In the Theravadan tradition, they say that of the four stages of enlightenment, a person should not teach meditation until they have achieved the second stage of enlightenment. Because of course that means they really, they've really learned it, they really know how to do it. They're not just repeating the instructions that they got from somebody else or read from a book or something like that. And it also means they haven't misunderstood the instructions because instructions have worked for them. Now, that's a pretty high standard to set. And 
I, I, if we restricted ourselves and only people teaching meditation were people at that level, that, that would be a terrible thing. But I understand the reason that that kind of standard exists in the, in the Theravadan tradition. But your teacher should have successfully mastered what they're trying to teach you. And in terms of the ten stages of meditation, there's, there are quite a few people around now who have successfully mastered the sixth and seventh stages. And they're great to teach people the, the stages, you know, one through six or seven, wherever they're at. They're, they're not well equipped, no matter how much they've studied, they're not really well equipped to teach people stages seven, eight, nine, and ten. But they, they can teach you what they've learned. So that's one of the things you want in terms of meditation, is your teacher should be a successful meditator. Same thing with the Dharma. Somebody that's going to teach you about the deeper truths of reality should be somebody who knows what they're talking about, has had that kind of experience. So we're, we're setting a higher bar for ourselves. But we don't have to set it too high. We just have to remember that if you set yourself in the position of learning somebody, learning from somebody who hasn't really mastered what they're teaching, they can hinder your progress as much as they can help you. So, so it puts a lot of responsibility on the, the student in terms of choosing the teacher. Should be a relationship of mutual respect, mutual engagement. If you want the teacher to bring the best out in you and teach you as much as they can, then you have to bring out the best in the teacher and learn as much as you can. 